0: Hello sci-fi and dystopian universe fans, and welcome to Brian Prosek's A Measure of Serenity. I'm Abigail Miles, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. I'll be introducing you to each one of our episodes of Brian Prosek's young adult adventure, A Measure of Serenity but you don't have to be young or an adult to enjoy this book. It's one of those unputdownable books that transports you to a new world no matter how old you are. It's a book to live in. What's the book about? A super genius girl in arithmetical equations, but not the kind you deal with in a boring math class. The kind that give you the tools to fight battles in other universes in order to save Earth. But let's not get ahead of ourselves and spoil anything. Serenity Ashdown, a socially awkward college senior, wants to live a normal life. She wants to forget that one horrible night that changed everything when she was a child. But she cannot forget. Her mind will not allow it.
1: Cat Publishing presents A Measure of Serenity by Brian Prosek, narrated by Suzanne Elise Freeman. Prologue. My mind replays that night for me like a movie, whether I want it to or not. I can never erase an image, no matter how hard I try, especially not this one. I was staring out the backseat window of our family car. The October night was as black as the cat on my Halloween t-shirt. The wipers intermittently creaked across the windshield, removing drizzles so my dad could see. I liked the darkness. I zoomed in on my reflection in the window, a 10-year-old girl with blonde hair and blue eyes, trying not to calculate and count everything in sight. The mirror image helped me relax, and my eyelids grew heavy. My head dropped forward. My reflex jerked my head up and opened my eyes, just to repeat the process. It had been a long drive from New York City to Hancock, New Hampshire, but we were so close to Grandma and Grandpa's farm, and I didn't want to fall asleep. I leaned my head against the glass. Wisps of fog skated over the window, adding an eerie tone to the darkness outside. I had started to nod off again when my little brother's cries startled me. He was strapped into a baby carrier in the seat beside me. My mom unbuckled her seatbelt and twisted around to stroke his little arms and legs. It's okay, Jonah, mommy's here, go back to sleep. Just as quickly as the crying started, it stopped. I leaned to my right to look through the windshield. The fog was lifting some, at least on that stretch of road. I could make out trees along the side of the road. I recognized the thickly wooded area. We were getting close. My stomach churned a little with excitement. I would have no problem staying awake now. My mom turned back around to rummage through the glove compartment. What are you looking for, mom? I asked. She did not answer, but continued to search. My dad turned his head to the right to look at me. How are you doing back there, Peanut? He asked. Peanut. That was his special name just for me. I loved it. So much more playful than Serenity, my real name. Just fine. I cannot wait to see Grandma and Grandpa. I know we are close. How much longer until we get there? My dad looked at the instrument panel and then turned back to me. We have 20 miles to go, and I'm driving 55 miles per hour. 21 minutes and 49 seconds, I said without hesitation. My mom laughed and shook her head as she looked up from the glove compartment, probably rolling her eyes at my quick math, when suddenly she screamed, Look out! My dad swiveled forward, and his back and shoulders tensed up as he slammed on the brakes. In the middle of the road, illuminated by the headlights, everything was distorted. The landscape wavered, moving as things seem to do when one looks at the horizon on a hot summer day. Except here? Everything wavered within an area about the size of a double garage door. Objects inside it appeared to change shape, undulating while remaining recognizable. The road in front of us, the trees just off to the side, and a speed limit sign all wavered. And a slight haze covered everything too. I took in all of this as the car skidded on the blacktop. I heard the horrible screeching sound of the tires against the road. My dad turned the steering wheel sharply to the left. We spun. The sudden turn threw me into Jonah. I felt myself turning upside down. The seatbelt pressed hard into my shoulder as it held my body weight. Then I felt myself roll again, stopping right side up. Jonah's screams pierced my right ear. I looked at him. He seemed fine, still strapped into his carrier, which was fastened tightly to the seat. Then... I looked forward. Mom was turned completely around with the back of her head resting against the dash, her legs on the seat, her back wedged against the open glove compartment. She didn't move, eyes closed, blood covering her face. She had not put her seatbelt back on after caring for Jonah. I looked behind the steering wheel. My dad was no longer there. I had to help my mom, But something I must have read somewhere popped into my mind. Save the youngest first. That was Jonah. But my mom was bleeding. My mind immediately jumped to another thing, help the person with the worst injuries first. That was mom. Like a computer caught in a feedback loop, my mind argued with itself. Stop analyzing, I tell myself every time I relive this memory even though I know I cannot prevent what happens next. Stop analyzing and just act. The right side of the car began to waver, just like the road and trees and sign. Even my mom's figure moved and contorted. I heard the sound of metal crunching. The front of the car was being crushed slowly, and the dashboard was moving toward me. I felt the back of the car pushing against me as well, the car was wedged crossways in the middle of the wavering area, and the force was crushing it, as if caught in an industrial car crusher. Get out, I thought. I have got to get out of here, or I will be crushed. I had to get Jonah out, too. And my mom. But who was I to help first? I ran through the steps in my mind necessary to get Jonah out of the car first, then return to help my mom. Based on all of the variables... I had a 70% chance of saving Jonah and a 20% chance of saving my mom if I proceeded in that order. If I helped my mom first, then Jonah, my odds of getting my mom out increased to 30%, but because of the time that would take, my odds of saving Jonah fell to 40%. Therefore, I needed to attempt to help Jonah first. Those were the better overall odds. But then, I realized that I had not factored in the car being crushed, That made it a moving target. Why was I calculating all of that? I needed to move. But I could not. My mind would not let me. Not until I had weighed all the factors and run all the calculations. I hated my mind. The car slowly caved in on itself. Jonah. He was right there. No more calculating. I unbuckled my seatbelt. The front seat started pushing against my legs. I reached over to unbuckle Jonah's carrier, but the buckle was jammed. I pressed hard with my thumb, then both thumbs. I tried to sit up to get more leverage, but my legs were caught. Thumbs aching, I pressed as hard as I could one last time, and the buckle popped open. I grabbed the handle of the carrier. As I struggled against the weight of Jonah and the carrier, I tallied the contents of Jonah's diaper bag which were strewn across the back seat. five diapers eight different toys, and a spilled container of Cheerios. Forty-three Cheerios rattling on the seat. Stop it! Metal squealed around me. I gave up on trying to lift the carrier and unbuckled the safety belt instead as Jonah screamed and squirmed. Finally, I got my arms around him. Numbing pain crept into both my knees. The front seat was now pressing hard against them, I could not lift Jonah from this angle, so I dragged him out of the carrier onto my lap. My ears ached from the sound of metal being crushed and Jonah screaming. I twisted around to the door, but my legs would not move. I had taken too long deciding what to do. Now I was pinned. I could not save Jonah. I could not save my mom. I could not even save myself. Suddenly, my door was wrenched open. My dad's big hands reached in. One grabbed me by the upper arm and the other grabbed Jonah. A sharp pain shot up my leg as I was lifted out of the car and then heaved over my dad's shoulder as he ran. The car exploded into flames behind us. The heat from the explosion stung my eyes, forcing them shut. When I opened them, the wavering had stopped. The road, trees, and sign We're solid in the fire's glow. Mom! One, the project. I love the feeling you get during the last class on a Friday afternoon. The small rectangular window next to my seat is cracked open, just enough to let in the slightest chill. It cools my face. The classrooms are always overheated this time of year. The trees are in full color outside. Everywhere I look, there is beautiful foliage, vibrant colors, red, orange, and yellow leaves with just a hint of green. It is a perfect fall day to end the week. I focus in on one particular maple tree that has turned a brilliant shade of red. Its bright red leaves contrast against the deep blue sky. The beauty and peacefulness of nature help me to relax. And more importantly, I do not count. Not the leaves on the tree, not the birds playing in the branches, not the white landscaping pebbles around the shrubs next to the building. Everywhere I look, there is always something to count or calculate or analyze. Right now, I am relaxed, but I know it will not last long. It never does. I can rarely find a place where, for any length of time, I am completely at ease, not thinking, not counting, not calculating, not analyzing, not hearing, not worrying, not doing any of the things my mind does on its own. I wish I could always find that place. I wish I could be normal. Serenity? The professor's voice brings me out of my trance. You're the only one who hasn't given it a try. Can you save the class and give me the answer? He wants the answer. I did not even hear the question. I look around the room. Some classmates are looking at me. Others are writing notes or typing on their laptops. I look at the professor. Could you repeat the question, please? He grins slightly from behind his desk and shakes his head, but responds. One of the solutions to the equation x squared minus 54x plus 104 equals zero is two. Can you find the other route using Vieta's formulas? He stands up and walks to the front of his desk. And as a bonus, if you get it right, the class is dismissed. You all can leave a little earlier. The rest of the class suddenly becomes restless. Most of the students sit up in their seats, paying more attention now. The professor looks around the class and then repeats himself with emphasis. Only if Serenity answers it exactly correct. None of the rest of you did. I overhear whispered conversations. I can tell each person who is talking, even at a whisper. I have heard everyone in the room talk before, at least once, so I know which voice belongs to which person. She'll never get it right, Jasper whispers. Andre replies, are you kidding? That's Serenity. Have you ever talked to that chick before? She's a stinking genius. I hear multiple conversations at the same time. I think I know the answer. That was Alex whispering. You just got it wrong yourself, you idiot, Marcus responds. I hear Jasper and Andre again. That chick is only 18, Jasper says. Kind of young for you. Plus, I hear she's quite the nerd. An 18-year-old senior at Harvard, Andre replies. Who's ever done that before? And maybe I think nerds are hot. The professor takes control. All right, everyone, quiet down so Serenity can answer. I slide forward in my seat and look around the room again. Now, all eyes are fixed on me. I do not feel even the slightest bit nervous. I never do when it comes to academics. I have never seen this question before and I do not recall ever studying or even reading about Vieta's formulas. But I must have skimmed over it at some point, speed reading a textbook or research materials. From Vieta's formulas, we have negative, open parenthesis, X1 plus X2, close parenthesis, equals negative 54. So X1 plus X2 equals 54, I say, trusting my voice to unreal what I saw. We substitute x1 for its value and get 2 plus x2 equals 54. Therefore, x2 equals 52. The professor has a look of astonishment on his face, which quickly turns to a look of satisfaction, as if he is responsible for my answer. That would be correct, Serenity. Excellent job. Everyone in the class immediately starts to gather their things with a few soft shouts of, yes! Don't forget your homework assignment, the professor says, raising his voice over the bustle of people heading for the door. It's on your syllabus. The professor stops me as I walk by his desk. Everyone else files out of the door. A couple students give me a thumbs up or whisper, thanks. Serenity, he begins as he leans against his desk. How would you like to take part in a special project that the university is undertaking? We're selecting only three students for it. It'll look good on your resume when you graduate next spring. What does it involve, I ask? It's a research project at a Harvard facility, the one where your father works. Where my dad works? Maybe this will give me a chance to learn something about the secret project that dad cannot talk about, although it has consumed him for so long. What is the research? He straightens up. I can't answer that myself, but Mr. Bailey is running the project. Dirk, Bailey, I interrupt, stepping back. Yes, is that a problem? Mr. Bailey brought my dad to Hancock, New Hampshire to work on a project the year after mom died. I guess I should be thankful for that. Now it's just a short drive to see grandma and grandpa on their farm. When we lived in New York City, we only visited a few times a year. There was too much commotion for me in such a large city. Even if it did have some of the best neurosurgeons, neuropharmacologists, and therapists in the world, they had done all they could for me. So moving us to Hancock was a blessing. But that was eight years ago, and Mr. Bailey still wants my dad to focus on that one project all the time. And whatever Mr. Bailey wants, Mr. Bailey seems to get. I regain my composure and adjust my book bag on my shoulder. I just thought Mr. Bailey was pretty high up at the university to be leading a research project with a group of students. The professor grins. Well, I'll let him explain. Like I said, I don't know the details. He just asked me to see if you might be interested. His office is just down the hall. Why don't you stop by? I start toward the door. Thank you, professor. Good luck with it. And Serenity, he pauses, excellent job in class today. For someone your age at the finest university in the country, you continue to amaze me. He gives me a genuine smile. Serenity, a voice calls from down the hall as I exit the classroom. I glance in that direction, but do not turn my head. It is Sean Patterson. I would recognize his tall, lanky frame at any distance. I look at my watch. I need to see Mr. Bailey and try to miss rush hour traffic. I do not want to make my hour and 45-minute commute any longer. Serenity, he calls again, this time much closer. I turn to face him, his blonde hair bobbing with each step. You never returned my snap from this morning. I hesitate, not sure how to respond. I am sorry. I was in the middle of something from my dad and have not had a chance yet to respond. I did not lie. I was completing the app I developed for my dad's project so he can test it tonight. I have had a lot on my mind lately. His face softens. I know. I understand. No worries. Is everything okay? I ask. Did you need something? Sean shakes his head. No. I had no special reason to, I snapped you because, I just wanted to say hey and see what you were up to. I slide my book bag off my shoulder, unzip it, and peer inside to see if I have to stop by my commuter locker to pick up any books for the weekend after I see Mr. Bailey before heading to my car. I need to make a quick getaway in order to beat traffic. Will you be at fencing club tonight? Sean asks. Fencing is one of the few things Sean and I have in common, besides our blonde hair and being seniors at Harvard. He is a regular senior, unlike me, majoring in business to take over the reins of his family's medical supply business when his father retires. I am studying to do research in the field of medicine and have no idea where I will work or what I will do. He pretty much has everything handed to him, but he does not act like it. Sure, I say sipping up my backpack and swinging it back onto my shoulder. I will be there. Great, Sean smiles. Where are you heading? I'll walk with you. I'm done for the day. I look at my watch, then at Sean and nod in the direction of Mr. Bailey's office. Actually, I am just heading down the hall. I have to meet with someone. Sean's smile disappears. Oh, okay. Well, maybe next time. I try to smile just enough that he can see I care about him as a friend, but not enough that he will think that my feelings go any further than that. I do feel bad, though. He is my best friend outside of my family, and the one individual that I have not driven away by telling him everything he is going to do before he does it, or because I cannot force myself to use contractions. The formality of my speech patterns makes me sound stuck up, but I cannot talk any other way. I cannot even think any other way. Sure, I say, I would like that. The door to Mr. Bailey's outer office is open, but the chair behind the secretary's oak desk sits empty. Nobody is in the room, so I walk past two empty chairs and a large plant toward Mr. Bailey's door and raise my hand to knock. Yes, I can hear you clearly, Can you hear me, Mr. Bailey says, apparently on the phone. The connections are getting stronger. This is the first time I've been able to remotely form a connection through the facility. Go ahead and put him on. He pauses. Hello, Mr. President. Mr. President? President of what? The university? No, he would not call Angela Turner Mr., I turn and look through the open door behind me. The hallway is empty. I hear nobody coming this way. But still, I should not eavesdrop. What Mr. Bailey says is none of my business. Yes, sir. I will have Phil Ashdown working around the clock now until it's activated. Dad? I am certain it has something to do with the project he has been working on for so long. What does Mr. Bailey mean by... Strong connections. A connection through the facility? I have heard enough. As I escape back toward the hallway, I hear Mr. Bailey's door open. Serenity, come on in. What brings you here? The new research project? Slowly, I return to Mr. Bailey's office. His secretary's small outer office pales in comparison to what sits behind this door. I cannot even take in the whole room without turning my head to scan it. I believe he has turned a former classroom into an office, and he spared no expense with his mahogany desk and floor-to-ceiling bookshelf on one wall. The sun shines in through a wall of windows on the opposite side. On one wall is a framed picture of Mr. Bailey and Wes Masterson, President of the United States, jointly holding a plaque that I cannot read from this distance. Mr. Bailey motions toward a leather chair facing his desk. Please, have a seat. I sink into the cushioning of the chair, my hands rubbing the soft leather of the armrests. Mr. Bailey sits in his tall chair behind his desk. I haven't seen you in a while. How are classes going? They are going well, thanks, I reply. I am terrible at small talk. I never know what to say. I probably should ask Mr. Bailey how he is doing, but instead I sit and wait for him to speak again. Your father says you graduate in the spring, is that right? Yes. What's your major again? I think Phil told me, but I forget. He leans forward, folding his hands and rests his forearms on the desk. I sit up straight, Nuclear medical technology and chemical engineering. He smiles. A double major in two of the most difficult fields. Impressive. I believe you are perfect for the new research project I have. Thank you, I say. Not looking at Mr. Bailey, but rather looking at his telephone. Something troubles me about the phone call I overheard. It was probably just something typical with my dad's work but everything related to my dad's work troubles me. 1,192 books on the bookshelf. I look out the window. 43 students and six faculty members in sight, making their way across campus. I see the maple tree outside my classroom, now from a different angle. A sparrow is perched on one of the branches. 89,756. Just looking at the tree, I know the number of leaves serenity mr bailey's voice brings me back to the conversation are you okay can i get you some water or something i blink my eyes and shake my head no thank you i am fine i must have been completely ignoring him i am sorry i was just trying to think what your project might be about that is not true but it is the best i can come up with he leans back in his chair and swings it sideways. Have you heard of Dr. Friedrich Gruber? I nod. Yes, he is a German scientist. He developed the quantum theory of astrological advancement. Mr. Bailey smiles. Of course, you would know all about him. I should have figured that. In other words, Dr. Gruber theorizes that time travel is possible. I lean forward. Now that we are past the small talk and on to discussing academics, My mind turns on. I can discuss this with anyone forever. That is his theory, I say skeptically. Mr. Bailey swings his chair back around to face me directly. You don't agree with him? I clear my throat. Mr. Bailey, I have read every book, journal, research paper, and note that I had access to that were written by Dr. Gruber and anyone else analyzing his work. I have run all the equations and did the math myself. No, I do not agree with him. I do not believe that his theory will work. My intent is not to be confrontational with Mr. Bailey. I do not like confrontation with anyone. But I cannot lie about something like this, and so I just state the facts. Mr. Bailey grins. That's exactly the attitude I am looking for, in at least one member on the team. Is the project to prove or disprove Dr. Gruber's theory? Mr. Bailey shakes his head. No, not exactly. But it does involve Dr. Gruber's theory. It will be easier to show you than to explain. The other two students are meeting Professor Poitet at the facility Monday morning. Are you able to meet then as well? I understand that it's lab day for you. This would be in place of your lab. He pauses and shifts in his chair. Professor Poite is the on-site point person on the project. I believe you've had a class or two with him. I nod. He is a very competent professor. And yes, I can be there. Mr. Bailey claps his hands once and stands up. Great. Once you see what Professor Poite has to show you, I'm sure you'll be on board. I'm excited about it and you students will get a lot out of the project. He walks around the desk toward me. I hate to run you off, but I need to jump on another call. I look out the window at the maple tree as I stand up to leave. The sparrow has 1,982 feathers. Two, on guard. I bounce my legs to keep them from getting stiff as I wait my turn. Sitting on the cold, hard floor is not helping, nor is leaning against the wall doing any favors for my back. The instructor's feminine yet bellowing voice brings me to attention, although I stay seated along with the rest of the club. Remember, cell phones are permitted around the strip only to video your classmates, with their permission, for instructional purposes. Charlene, sitting next to me, pokes my shoulder with her elbow as she raises her phone in front of her face, aimed at the two sparring students. I glance at her phone, but it is not set to video. She is sending a snap to someone called Pierre. Charlene turns toward me and grins. I match her gaze, crack a half-smile, and shake my head. My own phone buzzes. Snapchat. I cannot resist. I hold my phone up matching Charlene's phone position and open the app. It is from Sean. I look to my left and see Sean with his phone hidden between his legs. He looks at me and grins. I grin back and shake my head slightly. I keep my phone in front of my face and read Sean's snap. You're only supposed to be videoing. I do not look at Sean for fear of laughing. My smile grows wider so I position my phone to block the instructor's view of my face. I look past my phone at the two students on the strip, their epees clashing. Looking past the sparring students, a young man in his early 20s catches my eye as he walks past the window. I have seen him before, but not here or around campus. I saw him on the street back home in Hancock. I watch him as he approaches a white Chevy Impala parked at a meter on the street next to the studio. I saw an elderly lady park that car just 10 minutes ago when this bout started. She was alone. I vividly recall her fumbling through her purse to find change for the meter. My mind spins uncontrollably as I recall every detail. I watch as the young man reaches the empty white Impala and places two coins in the meter, then leans against the car as if he was waiting for someone. Is he waiting for me? Is he following me? No, of course not. Why would I even think so? The Impala has nothing to do with me. It belongs to the woman I saw before. He probably is waiting for her. It must be my dad's job and the secrets he keeps from me that are making me imagine such things. I jerk and drop my phone at the sound of the instructor's voice. Serenity. I grapple from my phone. How many times has she called my name? I was so focused on the guy outside. She continues. The bout is over. You can stop videoing now if that's in fact what you were doing. She tilts her chin down and raises an eyebrow. No, I say. I mean, yes. No, wait, I was not. The instructor saves me from continuing to stammer. Your turn to bout, Serenity. Charlene giggles as I get up. It's okay, I've got your back. I slip on my mask and step onto the padded strip. There is nobody new in the club, so it should be an easy night for me. I have seen everyone's moves. I know each person's technique, strengths and weaknesses, male and female. Just my luck to draw your name from my bout tonight says the voice from underneath my opponent's mask. You seem to beat everyone these days. It is Sean. He has decent skill, but is very predictable, even for an opponent like Charlene. I hold my epee up and take the on-guard stance. I like the saber bouts better since you can score with strikes as well as thrusts, but I am just as comfortable with an epee. Comfortable is a relative term, however. I am not athletic at all, and my weekly fencing club is the only form of exercise I get. I do not like violence, but my dad highly encouraged me to take up some sort of self-defense class. Fencing seemed kind of like a classical sport to me, and it turns out that I am pretty good at it, provided I have time to study my opponent. Although I highly doubt its usefulness in a self-defense situation, given that I do not carry an epee or saber around with me, and attackers will not let me study them first. En garde, prête, allez, the instructor shouts. Sean and I advance toward each other. I parry his first thrust. My counterattack is passé. I knew what Sean's attack would be. I could have scored immediately on my counter, but I did not want to make him look bad. We advance again. This time, our epes clash. I block right, left, right, left, over and over, retreating. Then, I move forward while he blocks my strikes. Right, left, right, left. I know each of his counters, so I keep him retreating until both of his feet are off the back of the strip. Hit for serenity, the instructor shouts. We start again in the center. This time, I let him score on a thrust. Hit, for Sean. We approach the center again. Sean tips his mask up. Don't let me score, Serenity. Give me your best. Okay then, I whisper to myself. I take the on guard stance. I stare at him, focusing on his position. His lanky frame and long arms make it difficult to score on an initial thrust. But he always leaves his chest open if he has to advance too far. He never maintains the proper form for too long. So, if I delay my advance and let him take four extra steps, the opening will be there when he is in range. I do exactly that, and my thrust scores a touch. Hit for serenity! Sean shakes his head as we walk back to the center of the strip. How did you do that? I smile through my mask. You told me you wanted my best. I need just one more hit. I probably could do the same thing again, but he may have learned from the first time, so I will let him try to score first. He backs me up, strike after strike. Then I return the advance and back him up. But instead of forcing him off the strip, this time I allow him to back me up again. That will give him confidence and lure him in. I parry each blow, waiting until the right moment for a repost when his epee is low enough. Now, Sean lunges and I parry the attack, countering immediately with a feint. He goes for the fake, then I move in with a final thrust and score the touch. Hit for Serenity. The instructor steps onto the strip. The bout goes to Serenity. Excellent job, both of you. Sean and I take our places along the wall to watch the next bout. Sean removes his mask. His blonde, curly hair is flattened from sweat. I remember once upon a time when I beat you. Twice, as a matter of fact. Our first two bouts, when you first joined the club. Ever since then, you have had my number. In fact, you have had everyone's number lately. Why don't you go to any of the competitions? I do not compete because I would lose immediately. Unless I was able to study every possible competitor in practice or training, I would not make it out of the first round. I am not big. I am not fast. I am not strong. And I am not overly skilled. I win because I know what my opponents are going to do before they do it. But that is not how I answer. I smile. Thank you for the compliment, but I do not have the time. I am just in the club to get some exercise. Three, under pressure. There are 453 words on the computer screen in front of me. 32 people here in the student tech room in Barker Center. Harvard's campus is packed today with men, women, and children. Why did Mr. Bailey have to pick family day to ask my dad to demonstrate his progress on the project? It must have something to do with that call yesterday. And why did my dad ask me to help in the first place? He always thinks I can do more than I can. On top of all of that, we waited to the last minute to perform the final tests. With a dead laptop and no charger, the media center is the only place on campus I can find a secure enough computer to update the app. My dad said that I cannot email the new app to him, and sending it by any other electronic means is too risky. So now I have to finish downloading the app and run it across campus to my dad by 11 o'clock. I look at my watch. 10.30. I rub sweaty palms on my jeans. Focus, Serenity. Focus. A high-pitched girl's voice is to my left. Did you see Jack's post on Instagram? Another girl's voice, this one with a New York accent. Nah, did he post it on Facebook? Facebook? For real? The first girl laughs. Isn't that for old people now? I startle as my phone vibrates in my pocket. When I pull it out, I see a message from Stella on Snapchat Serenity, where are you? We're all on Slack right now for our biology project, remember? I feel my chest tighten. In my rush to finish programming the app, I forgot about my own project meeting. I look at my watch. 10.35. I shift in my seat. What is taking this app so long to download to the thumb drive? Somebody bumps into my back. This room is so crowded. I glance around. Now 36 people are in the room. Students showing their parents or significant others their projects on the computers and wall-mounted video screens. Most are probably media students. I see a middle-aged, bearded man standing alone in the far corner wearing a Harvard baseball cap. I recognize him immediately. I saw him, minus the cap, in the checkout line in the grocery store near my house in Hancock. I recall his face perfectly, just like every face I see. First, the man at the fencing club, and now this guy. Am I just being paranoid again? I send a snap in reply to Stella. I am so sorry. I forgot. Tied up now. We'll see you in class. Stella replies immediately. Are you okay? You never forget anything. I am fine, I deflect, and shove my phone back into my pocket. Why does my dad need a mobile app that connects directly with the program he is designing anyway? There are a million apps out there. Does he really need another one? Yet he cannot tell me what the program is or what it does. Something about government policy and confidentiality. This is not the first time that he has asked me to help, and I am always in the dark. Apps are my dad's one technological weakness, He cannot program apps. Still, Mr. Bailey could have gotten one of his other servants to do something like this. A sigh escapes me. I should not use the term servant, but that is the way he treats my dad. Like a servant, not like his employee. And I have heard my dad talk on more than one occasion about the pressure Mr. Bailey puts on him and the unrealistic deadlines, with no explanation as to why. I look at the monitor. The screen reads, download complete. Next stop, my dad's presentation in the science center. My brain instantly leaps to calculating the best routes. With a groan of frustration, I stand up and shove the thumb drive into my pocket. The man in the baseball cap is gone. My watch says 1040. Impossible. How can I possibly make it on time? Why did my dad put this pressure on me? No. It is fine, he needs me. My phone buzzes, another Snapchat message. This time it is from Sean. A brief smile crosses my lips as I close the Snapchat app, put my phone in my other pocket and push my way through the crowd and out of the room, then out of the building. There are way too many people on the campus. I just want to be alone in the peaceful countryside or on grandma and grandpa's farm where I can focus. 220 men in sight, 232 women, 115 children. I have to get moving. I raise my wrist. 1045. I need to cross Harvard Yard to get to the science center. I start to push my way through the crowd. I feel my armpits getting damp and beads of sweat forming on my forehead, but not from heat. The fall air is cool, and it is not from nervousness. It is the closeness of the people. My throat tightens. I feel like I am suffocating. I turn and catch a glimpse of the man in the baseball cap, I think. It is hard to tell through the people. Is he following me? No. Why would he be? I am just letting my mind wander again. I need to keep moving. I push forward, but the crowd is too thick. I see Widener Library to my left. I start in that direction. If I cut through the library, maybe I can avoid some of the crowd and move faster. I continue to move as swiftly as possible in that direction. Widener Library is much less crowded than outside, but there still are plenty of people inside. I decide to take a side exit out of the library. It is a single side door facing Harvard Yard. I assume that there will be less people there than on the steps of the main exit, As I approach the glass door, I see the reflection of people behind me. It is him, the man in the baseball cap. I do not know why, but I believe he really is following me. I feel my chest tighten again. My heart races. Now I have another reason to hurry. I exit along with a small group of people down the old concrete steps. I look to my left. A toddler makes his way down the steps, clutching the spokes of the black iron hand railing to support himself with each step. The boy's mother is busy talking to someone as she walks behind her son. I look ahead of the boy. Two steps down, a spoke is missing from the railing. At the same point, the concrete step is cracked and crumbling at the front edge. At his current pace, the boy will arrive at that spot in four seconds, at which point he will have to reach farther than he had been in order to grab the next spoke. That will cause his foot to extend to the front edge of the step. The crumbled edge will give way, causing the boy's foot to slip out from under him. He will fall backward, grasping for the missing spoke, and hit his head on the edge of the third step up. He will bleed for sure, a possible concussion, maybe worse. I do not mean to calculate it. I just happen to look to my left and see what is there. Maybe I should not intervene. Let it go. Maybe I will stop noticing such things. Maybe that will set me free. But I look at that little boy and I see Jonah, helpless. Whether it's a car collapsing in on itself or a concrete step, what's the difference when the numbers add up to something awful? I bend down and reach out my hand to the left, opening my palm just above the edge of the step. A split second later, I'm cushioning the boy's head safely in my hand. His mom gasps and picks him up. Thank you, she says, wide-eyed. She hugs her crying boy, comforting him. But he only cries from the scare of the fall, not from pain. That is why I had to do it. Somehow, in some way, the accident would have been my fault. 10.55, I continue down the steps. Since the crowd here is more dispersed, I easily navigate through it, running across the yard, across the plaza, and into the science center. I glance over my shoulder occasionally as I run, but I do not see the man in the cap. In front of the science center, I bend over to catch my breath. Fencing is good exercise, but it sure does not keep me in shape for a sprint. I reach into my pocket for the thumb drive just to make sure it is still there but it is the wrong pocket. My phone has three texts from my dad in the last ten minutes, asking where I am and if everything is okay. I reach into the other pocket for the thumb drive and hold it firmly in the palm of my hand. The clock in the hall shows eleven o'clock. I race to the computer lab. My dad is standing outside the lab looking at his watch. I rush to him. Dad, I got here as fast as I could. My dad puts a hand on my shoulder. It's okay, Peanut. Mr. Bailey just got here anyway, he smiles. Thank you so much for doing this. He must notice my frown, because his smile disappears. It would be easier to help if I knew more about the program that the app is to connect to. I wish you could tell me more. I pause. Dad, does Mr. Bailey know I am helping you? He has to have other people who can design apps, right? My dad lowers his head, his eyes narrow. Serenity, you know I can't answer those questions. He relaxes his face. I need to get in there and show this to Dirk. He pauses again. Love you, Peanut. I trust my dad, but I like knowing all the facts. The lack of control makes things worse from my mind. And from what I know of Mr. Bailey, I am concerned for my dad and his job. As he turns away from me, I remember the man in the baseball cap. I want to tell my dad about my suspicions, but maybe I am just being paranoid. And now is not the time anyway. I know my dad needs my help, and as long as my dad needs me to help, I will do so. I already let my mom and Jonah down. I cannot let my dad down too. I smile. I love you too, dad. Four, nightmares. The full moon shines intermittently through the naked branches of the late autumn trees. The layer of fog covering the damp ground makes it difficult to see where to step. The sticks and plants of the forest floor poke my bare feet. The cold night air chills my skin. I look down. I cannot remember why I am wearing only a nightgown, but that does not matter now. I have to make my way to the sound of the baby crying. I can hear it in the distance. Each step takes me closer. Why is a baby crying in the middle of the forest? I do not know where I am or who the baby is, but I have to help the baby. I cannot tell if it is a boy or a girl. I stub my toe and stumble over a log, but maintain my balance. I do not feel any pain in my toe, though. As I continue walking, I begin to see more clearly now. The clouds are starting to dissipate, allowing more moonlight to pass through, so I move faster. The crying becomes louder, more intense, as I close in on the baby. I have to help her. I have to save her from whatever is making her cry. My muddy feet slip on a rock as I walk more quickly. I approach a small clearing in the trees, lit from the moonlight. The crying is coming from there. I slow down and cautiously approach its edge. In the middle of the clearing, I see a baby strapped into a car seat sitting on the ground. She is all alone and dressed in boys' clothes. I focus more intently on the baby. It is a boy, not a girl. I slowly enter the clearing. I have to help him. I have to get him out of the woods. I have to get him to safety, to his parents. As I get closer, I recognize the baby. It is not just any baby. It is Jonah. But how can that be? Jonah is now eight years old. Help me, Serenity, I hear from the far side of the clearing. I look up. My mom is standing at the edge of the clearing. Blood streaks her face. The trees and ground around her waver, but she does not. A slight haze covers the area around her. My mom reaches out a hand. Help me, Serenity, please, and save Jonah. Jonah's cries now pierce my ears, I try to take a step forward, but I cannot. I look down at my mud-covered feet. They will not move. I look around. 48 trees are visible around the perimeter of the clearing. I try to step again, but my feet feel heavy. I look down, and I have sunk to my ankles in the mud. I look up. 893 stars are visible in the night sky. I am 15 steps from Jonah. I am 51 steps from my mom. I have to help them, but I cannot stop counting. I look down again. I have sunken deeper. The mud is now up to my knees, making movement impossible. Jonah screams even louder. Serenity, please, my mom begs. I look at her. The wavering area is growing larger moving toward Jonah and me, and my mom seems to be drifting farther away. Actually, she is not drifting into the forest. She is fading. If I walk steadily, I can reach Jonah in 10 seconds, and I can reach my mom in 35 seconds. At the current rate of growth of the wavering area, it will reach Jonah in 20 seconds. I have time to save him. I have to get him out of the clearing and to safety. Then I can try to save my mom, but I still cannot move. I look down. The mud is up to my waist. The more I count and calculate, the deeper I sink into the mud. Jonah screams again. My mom pleads, Serenity, please, I need you. Her voice is barely audible now. The wavering landscape continues to move toward Jonah and me, and my mom continues to fade into the haze. I have to move. I try to will myself to move, but I am already too deep in the mud. Jonah lets out one final cry as the wavering landscape overtakes him, and my mom disappears. No, I shout. Mom, Jonah, no, come back. I am so sorry. Please come back. Serenity, serenity, I hear a coming from behind me. I feel a hand on my arm, gently shaking me. Serenity, it's okay. It's just a dream. I feel my arm shake more, and I slowly open my eyes. My dad is holding my arm as he sits down on the edge of my bed. I feel beads of sweat running down my forehead, dropping onto my pillow. My dad smiles reassuringly. You had the dream again? I nod more often than usual, because of, I nod, because of tomorrow, the anniversary of the dreadful night eight years ago. I still blame myself. If not for my dad, my counting and calculating would have cost Jonah his life. Jonah lives, but mom is dead. Not only was I unable to save her, but there was no time to say goodbye or a final, I love you. Just gone. And with no body to place in the casket, there was not even a chance to see her face one last time. But everyone said that was a gift. That we can remember her the way we have her pictured in our minds. Which, for me, is easy. I just choose the picture I want and pull it up. Like pulling a photo album out of a drawer. I guess my mind is good for some things. Jonah's silhouette dragging his teddy bear by the arm, appears against the hall light shining into my bedroom doorway. Is Serenity okay? My dad turns. Everything is fine. Just a bad dream. Did she see the boogeyman? Jonah asks. My dad shakes his head. You know there is no such thing as the boogeyman. Now, you hop back in bed. I'll be over in a minute to tuck you in again. Dad, I say, Do you ever have nightmares about that night? He never talks about that night, and I have never asked him about it, until now. My dad looks down and then slowly raises his head to catch my gaze. I try not to think about it much. I don't like to think about it, and it's hard for me to talk about. I guess that's why I never do, he pauses. Maybe if I was more open about it and talked about it, you wouldn't be having nightmares. Is that why you work so much? To keep your mind from thinking about it? And why you have me help you so much? So I will not think about it as much? My dad's forehead creases as he looks down again. I know that look. He wants to tell me something, but does not know how. He is quiet. He looks at me again. No. It isn't why I work so much. I don't want to be away from you and Jonah as much as I am, but I have to work. It's like I've said before. I just have to. And everything I ask you to do, I really need you to do. This is the most he and I have ever talked about that night. I have always kept my questions to myself, but now I can't stop myself. I sit up in my bed and lean on my elbow. Do you know what we saw that night, Dad? Why was everything moving? What smashed the car? My dad's forehead creases again and he pinches his eyes closed with his thumb and finger. Again, a long pause. He opens his eyes but avoids eye contact. I don't know. I wish I could give you answers but I can't. I'm sorry. I lay back, which is it? He does not know or he cannot tell me, but I do not say anything. My dad looks back at me. I better go check on your brother. Will you be okay, Peanut? Part of me wishes he would not call me that anymore. It is a little embarrassing to be 18 years old and still have your dad call you Peanut, especially in public, but on the other hand, I love that we have such a good relationship, that he feels comfortable calling me that. I nod. I am fine. I do not believe that I am fine, and I am certain that my dad does not believe it either, but it is the best response that I have for now. We have to get up for church in the morning, try to sleep. I obediently roll over and close my eyes, but sleep eludes me. 5. Sunday Dinner Sunday is my favorite day. Church and then dinner at Grandma and Grandpa's house. After last night's nightmare, I really need this. I enjoy everything about visiting Grandma and Grandpa, especially the beautiful drive through the country to get there. Of course, one does not have to go far from Hancock to be in the country. I watch out the window as the hills pass by, perfectly painted with fall colors against a clear blue sky. I stare at the beauty, letting my mind wander and focus on something different. Even the dark red and brown grass growing over an old fence line is a picturesque sight. I relax, letting my mind wander off into the scenery. No worries, no fears, no need to focus on anything in particular. Come on, Serenity, Jonas says, shaking my arm and bringing me out of my trance as the car stops. Let's go! I step out and look at the familiar sight of the old barn, its siding freshly painted bright red and set off by white trim. We park to the side of the detached garage, which is painted to match the barn. I follow my dad and Jonah down the long cement walk leading to the large, white farmhouse. Overgrown bushes block the front room window in the summerhouse which is just off the porch. My grandparents' homestead looks like it is stuck in the 1940s. Halfway to the house, I jump at the sound of a sharp horn and turn at the sound of tires skidding in the gravel. A rusty blue pickup slides to a stop in the driveway. Mr. Johnson, grandma and grandpa's neighbor to the north. I would recognize his truck anywhere. Mr. Johnson waves his fist out of the truck window and turns up one side of his lip. Harold Steiner, your bull's in my field again, he shouts. You have one hour to get him out before I shoot him dead, and you best figure out how he's getting through the fence and fix it. I'm a warning you, I'm fixing to bring the law down on you. I look toward the house and watch as Grandpa starts making his way down the walk. Hold on there a minute, Jeb, Grandpa says, holding up a finger. Mr. Johnson ignores the command, turns his head, and shifts his pickup into gear. His back tires spin in the loose gravel, throwing stones to the back and side as he speeds away. What was that all about? My dad asks, looking at Grandpa. Oh, you know Jeb Johnson, Grandpa says. He's been senile for years, and I've never met an angrier man. My bull's never been in his field. In fact, I sold my bull last week. Grandpa puts one arm around me and one around Jonah. Now, how are my two favorite grandchildren? We're your only grandchildren, Jonah says, smiling up at Grandpa. Well, that doesn't mean you're not my favorites, Grandpa says, looking down at Jonah and me with his soft smile, a smile that only a grandpa can give. I think Grandma's got quite a lunch a-cookin'. What do you say we go in and give her a hand? He looks at Dad holding his laptop case in one hand and his briefcase in the other. I see you brought work, Phil. My dad nods. Unfortunately, yes. I'll have to take my dinner in the den. We're at a key breakthrough point on the project. His face is tight, his forehead wrinkled with tension. My dad is worried about something. He has worked on Sundays before. It is not a totally new concept, but it has never bothered him like this before. What happened at his presentation yesterday? Was something wrong with my app? I climb the stone steps, cross the porch, and walk through the front door. I love entering this house. Right inside the front door is the dining room table, already set for lunch. The smell of fried chicken hits me immediately one of my favorites yes this is one of the few places where i relax enough to ignore the world and everything in it everyone is quiet as we pass around the plate of fried chicken a bowl of green beans mashed potatoes gravy cornbread and jello salad i bite into a crispy chicken leg the meat falls off the bone and melts into my mouth Are you going to watch the president's State of the Union address tonight, Grandpa? I ask after I swallow. Grandpa finishes off a forkful of green beans. Wouldn't miss it for anything. We finally have a good president. Someone who's good with the environment, yet businesses love him. Grandma looks at him and smiles. Oh, Harold, you just like him because he's a Republican. 16 years of Democrats is quite enough, Grandpa says. I remember when we lived in New York. Wes Masterson was only a state senator, I say. From state senator to president, Grandpa replies. Don't see that too often, Grandma interrupts. I fixed a plate for Phil. I'll take it to him. I reach for the plate. I will take it, Grandma. You have been working all morning. Relax and eat. I open the door and enter the den. Dad's laptop is set up on the desk in the corner and papers are strewn across the couch. But he is not here. I see him through the window, pacing back and forth in the yard, talking to someone on his cell phone. He must have gone out the back door to take the call or to make one. He must not want us to overhear. A mathematical formula ending in a very complex equation catches my eye on my dad's laptop screen. It is something that I do not recognize, I have seen neither the formula nor the equation before. I set the plate of food on the desk and glance at the papers on the couch. I see notes related to the mobile app I developed and my work determining continuity equations for mass, energy, and momentum. I look out the window. My dad is not looking in, so I move to the other end of the couch and pick up a few papers. They contain my work on quantum geometry dynamics. I did this two years ago. My dad said that Mr. Bailey ended up not needing that work. But why does he still have my research results and calculations? And why is he apparently using them? I look out the window again. My dad is still on the phone, so I move back to his laptop and sit in the desk chair. I slide the chair closer to the desk so that the angle from the window prevents my dad from seeing me. The call must have surprised him. He has left his work open. He never does that. His work is always secured with multiple firewalls. I lean back so I can see out the window. Still on the phone. I work the keypad, trying to determine the purpose of the formula and resulting equation. My fingers slip on the keyboard from my nervous sweat. I should not be doing this. What if my dad catches me? He has gone to great lengths to keep the purpose of his work from me. And what is worse, he has kept the purpose of my work from me too. But this is my chance to find out what the project is about, what Mr. Bailey has been doing that is so secret, and what I have been working on. I scoot forward in the chair and continue to search on the laptop. I find a description that encompasses all of my individual projects and some of my dad's work as well. It looks like the combined work has been used to derive the formula and then the equation I saw. I feel my heart beating faster. I glance out the window. Good. Still talking. I read the description. Calculation of the probability of opening the universal continuum where mass and energy are intrinsic properties of prions and the number of prions needed to be acquired by a composite particle to maintain constant mass and energy regardless of speed. What are my dad and Mr. Bailey doing? I am so close. I just need to dig a little deeper. I lean back and look out the window. My dad is gone. Oh no. I start to close the files I had opened. I need to get the laptop back to the formula and equation. I hear the back door close. 78 words on the laptop screen. 16 punctuation marks. 23 numerals. I feel a bead of sweat trickle down my back. My fingers work the keyboard as fast as I can move them. Now 56 words, 12 punctuation marks, and 18 numerals on the screen. My heartbeat quickens. I hear footsteps coming closer. Two more files. One more. The doorknob turns. The formula and equation pop up. I hop up and grab the plate of food. The door opens as I turn and smile. Dad, I brought you lunch. He stands at the door, expressionless. He looks at the laptop, then at the couch, then at me. He glances back toward the couch, then looks at me again and cracks a slight smile. Thanks, Peanut. Six, the facility. The crisp, clear autumn Sunday has turned into an overcast Monday as I drive to the facility, Near Peterborough. For the other students, the facility is a long way from campus, but for me, it is ideal. Hancock to Peterborough is a much shorter commute than Hancock across the state line and on to Cambridge. The overcast sky is good, though. The sun always turns my skin pink, even in the fall. You have such pretty, fair skin, my mom used to say. I say it is ghostly pale. I try to call my dad's cell phone again, but it goes to voicemail. He must be in the basement lab, no signal. The staticky message he left last night just said that he had to work all night, that the project was nearly finished. When he left for the facility after we got home from Grandma and Grandpa's, he thought he would be home by 8 or 9. He left a second message sometime during the night saying he needed to talk to me, that it was urgent. He sounded rushed. I wish I had checked my messages sooner, but I did not do so until I was in my car this morning. I keep playing Mr. Bailey's telephone conversation from Friday over and over in my mind. Who was Mr. Bailey talking to and what did he mean by activated? And I keep thinking about the formula, calculation, and description I found on my dad's computer. The probability of opening the universal continuum What does that mean then there are the men that are following me at least i think they are following me i have not had a chance to tell my dad about them something just does not feel right i must find him as soon as i get to the facility i will arrive early so i will have time to look but the basement lab has restricted access at least i might find out what is going on I turn onto the highway and it begins to drizzle. A light coating of raindrops covers the windshield, just enough to need the wipers on the lowest intermittent setting. My mind wanders again. I let it go. Your intelligence is a gift, everyone says. Wrong, it is a curse. I have heard you are one of a kind so many times, even I do not want to count. Maybe I am special, but it forces me to always be on my guard. It might start with a glance to the right, where I see cattle in the field and count them, and it escalates from there. Stars on a clear night, rows of corn in a field, words on a page, leaves on a tree, blades of grass. And then there are the noises, the distinct sound of each car engine, or the distinct sound of each cricket, and Katie did, and Locust on a warm summer's evening. It goes on and on unless I can make myself stop. I hear the roar of a car approaching from behind. The engine is a six-cylinder inline. That particular engine is generally used in Jeep Wranglers. I look in the rearview mirror. Sure enough, a faded red Wrangler is gaining on me. A flock of birds, startled by the car, takes flight out of a stand of trees. I glance up. 122 birds. Stop. Calm down. Think of something relaxing and focus on that. I think about my dad, what he might be working on. That does no good. Next, I hear eight motorcycles approaching from behind even before they are visible in the rearview mirror. As they slowly appear, I see that I am exactly right. Eight. Each engine has a unique hum. I hate the way my mind races off on its own. There is movement in the field to my right. A deer. She is 50 yards ahead of me. My mind immediately takes over. It is not conscious. I immediately recall from my reading the top speed of a white-tailed doe. 30 miles per hour. I glance down at my speedometer. I'm going 55. I look toward the doe again. She runs perpendicular to me, straight toward the road. At that distance, running at top speed, the doe will reach the center of my lane two seconds after I do if I maintain my current speed. It takes me just a split second to calculate this. I do not slow down. The doe closes in as I quickly approach the spot in the road where she will be. I still do not slow down. Anybody else would. I am not nervous. I know my calculations are correct. They always are. I hate what my mind does. For once, I want to be wrong and maybe all of this will stop. I want to hit the deer. The deer is six seconds from the road. I am four seconds from the spot. Three, two, one. The deer is right beside my car. Zero, no impact. The deer darts just behind my rear bumper two seconds after I pass. I hate it. I slow down when I see the turnoff to the facility. I try to call my dad again, but get his voicemail. I almost come to a complete stop when I turn onto the one-lane road, which is engulfed on each side by trees. I continue to drive slowly, swerving slightly to miss the potholes, but it is impossible to avoid all of them. The narrow road winds through the trees, their thick leaves dressed in autumn colors. The trees hide the facility at every turn. My dad always says they wanted to be inconspicuous. Why Harvard needs an inconspicuous facility, I do not know. It is probably a government requirement having to do with the type of research. But from what I have seen in helping my dad, It really is not Harvard's research, it is Dirk Bailey's research. And as my dad has said, while Mr. Bailey might be on Harvard's payroll, he certainly does not work for Harvard. He is a government man. I make the final turn and the tree lined road opens into a 20 or 30 acre clearing surrounded on all sides by hills lined with colorful trees. I pull up to the large gate the only opening in the black wrought iron fence surrounding the building. Through the fence, I can see the shiny silver of the new barbed wire chain link fence, likely installed to reinforce the outdated wrought iron. And beyond that, the red brick building everyone calls the facility. The entire setup looks like an old prison made secure with new fencing and a guardhouse. Although I know it has had many former uses, I do not believe that the building was ever used as a prison. It just looks like it. I stop near the gate and watch as a man comes out of the guardhouse. His tan camouflage uniform blends in with the backdrop of autumn foliage. A large handgun swings from the holster around his waist as he approaches. Hi, Serenity, the man says. I recognize him when I see his face. Hi, Winston. Winston smiles what can I do for you? Are you here to see your father? I nod. Sort of. Can I go on up? Winston looks at the small computer notebook he holds in his hand and makes a few swipes over it with his finger. You're already on today's visitors list. You, two other students, and a professor Poite. Oh, you're part of the research group that I heard about, Sorry for the trouble, but if I don't mark you in and somebody else is here when you leave, I'm in big trouble. Head on up. Someone will meet you at the door. I smile. No problem. Thanks. I press the power switch to raise my car window, then stop. Have any of the others arrived yet? Winston looks at his computer again. Nope. You're the first. He starts to back up, then stops and looks at his computer again. Wait, there's a note in here for you, it's from your father. It says to see him as soon as you arrive, it's marked urgent. I lower my window again. Do you know where I can find him? Winston shakes his head. No, I'm sorry, why don't you ask the guard at the door? I wait as the gate slowly opens, then I ease my car through. The drizzle has stopped. It is easy to find a parking spot, as the number of spaces far exceeds the number of cars I ever see here. I pull into a spot in the second row. The newly painted lines are easily visible against the faded asphalt. I make my way up the concrete steps. As I near the top step, I hear a click and the large oak door slowly swings open. Just as Winston said, another guard greets me, dressed in the same tan camouflage uniform. I do not recognize him, but then again, I have stepped inside the facility only on the rare occasion that I came inside to wait for my dad. The guard nods toward me. Miss Ashdown, I presume. They called me from the guardhouse. I do not answer immediately. Something feels odd, out of place. I have not been here many times, but I recall where every object was during my earlier visits and know where each one should be now. I look around the massive entranceway, now used as the lobby. I look toward the 25-foot ceiling with its painting of English riders on horses led by hunting dogs. The riders are in a forest, all coming from different directions, and in the middle, a lone red fox looks as if it is trying to decide which way to go. If the painting came to life, The fox would not have a chance. 43 horses, 43 riders, 82 dogs, 1,417 trees, and one fox. Everything seems to be here, yet something is missing. I slowly follow the ceiling to one of the thick wooden columns in the corner, then follow it down to the shiny marble floor, black swirled with white. In each of the four corners stands a pedestal. On each pedestal is the bust of a former United States president. Other than that, the grand lobby sits empty. Yes, the appearance is the same as always, but the place feels different. For one thing, it seems much quieter than before. Miss Ashdown, the guard says, piercing me with his stare. Are you all right? I'm here to escort you to the lab. It's just down this hall. He motions with his hand. I glance at the guard and then look down the hall straight ahead. I wonder how to get to the basement lab. Uh, yes. I nod once. Yes, I'm fine. I, uh, I need to find my dad, Philip Ashdown. The guard at the gate said my dad requested that I come see him. That message was marked urgent. I think he is in the basement lab. Can you show me where that is? The guard's face twitches underneath his thick black beard. I'm sorry, that area is restricted. He offers no information, no alternative to finding my dad. Can you see if he is there? Tell him his daughter is here and wants to see him. I am sorry, but my orders are to escort you and the other visitors to the student lab. The guard steps to the side, and holds out his arm to motion me down the hall. This way, please. But he has been trying to reach me, I plead. I fear that something might be wrong. The guard continues to look down the hall as if he did not hear a word I said. This way, I said. Can you at least just see if he is here? I ask as I start to walk. Please, I add desperately. I don't understand why the guard does not alert my father that I am here. I have the overwhelming sense that something is wrong, that he needs my help, that I should do something. But I do not know what. What else is new? All I do is think, count, calculate. Without looking at me, the guard replies, I will see what I can do. Right, his lame promise does not convince me. Nonetheless, I walk down the large hallway slightly ahead of the guard. The clang of his boots on the marble floor echoes, bouncing off the walls and ceiling. We pass several dark oak doors. The facility's interior looks even more magnificent than its exterior. While the building is old, with its high mosaic ceilings, columns, and marble floors, it is very well maintained. And according to my dad, the labs and computers are state-of-the-art. I examine the doors on the right and left as we walk past. None of them are marked. I count the number of marble squares there are from the front door as we walk, without thinking about it. But there is no way to tell which door leads to the basement, if any even do. The guard stops and turns toward a door on our left. Here we are. He steps up and swipes his ID card over the electronic eye located on the wall beside the door. Next to it is an older model of a keypad security lock. They must have replaced the system recently. The lock clicks, and the guard opens the door, stepping aside to allow me to enter. I will be back with the others when they arrive, he says, reaching inside and turning on the lights. I turn around when I am just past the threshold of the door. And my dad, you will check on him, I say, half asking and half demanding. The guard does not reply. He turns away, closing the door in front of me. There is another click as it locks behind him. This is my chance, before the others get here. My dad is missing. I need to find him. I will need access to the basement lab if and when I locate it. I think I have an idea. Hopefully the old keypad security system is still operational as a backup and hopefully it has one common passcode. I go into the bathroom that is accessible from within the lab. I fill the toilet with toilet paper and flush, clogging it. Now, to mix a compound. I slowly look around the lab, and against the side wall, just past the main workstation, my glance lands on the cabinet where the non-toxic compounds are stored. I search the shelves and retrieve two bottles, one labeled... Poly HEMA, 2 hydroxyethyl methacrylate, and the other, EGDMA, ethylene glycol dimethacrylate. Perfect. These will work. I mix a small amount of each in a beaker. That should do the trick and create an anti hydrophobic film. I take the beaker and a small brush and open the door to the hallway. I look left, then right. Nobody in sight. I doubt I have much time. My armpits are damp with sweat. What does Harvard do to students who violate policy at the facility? Hopefully nothing more than kick them out of the lab. I can live with that. Propping the door open with my foot, I brush the mixture over the electronic eye. After I rinse the beaker's contents down the sink, I exit into the hallway, allowing the door to shut behind me. I hear the lock click. I start walking toward the main lobby. Miss Ashdown, I hear from behind me. I jerk, startled. It sounds like the guard. Of course, that is who I am looking for, but where did he come from? Did he see me brush the mixture onto the eye? Did he see me exit the lab just now? He was nowhere in sight when I walked into the hallway. He must have come out of another room. Okay, Serenity, keep it together, I whisper. I cannot let him suspect anything. He could not have seen me. I was careful. At least, that is what I tell myself. I turn around slowly so as not to seem alarmed. Miss Ashdown, he says again. Do you need something? Oh, yes, I say. I am looking for you. See, the toilet in the lab is clogged, so I came out to find another restroom, and I have locked myself out of the lab. The guard stares at me his lips tight, barely visible through his mustache and beard. Why is he staring so long? He does not believe me. The guard slowly turns and starts walking toward the lab door, his eyes still fixed on me. All right, Miss Ashdown, I'll let you back in. He swipes his ID card over the electronic eye. Please work, please let the compound work. Nothing happens, no click. No anything. He swipes it again. Nothing. He rubs the card on his shirt and swipes it yet again. Nothing. He holds the underside of his wrist to his mouth. There is a comm device strapped to it. Diana, I need assistance at the student lab. My card isn't working. Can you bring yours down? A woman's rough voice comes through the comm. I'm tied up right now. I'll send you the backup code. The guard pulls a handheld electronic device from his belt. He studies it for a second, then quickly punches numbers on the keypad. Two, five, eight, nine, zero, pound, two, two, five, 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 seven, star. The door clicks. I only need to see the numbers once. I wait long enough for the guard to have left the hallway, then I leave the lab again. This time, I head in the opposite direction, There has to be a door that leads to the basement, probably not off the main hallway, though, and there cannot be too many twists and turns. This is an old building, rectangular and box-shaped. I reach the end of the main hallway and turn left. A shorter hallway leads to another wooden door that has no security pad of any kind. I slowly turn the knob. It is not locked. I continue to turn, and it opens. Enough light shines in from the hallway so I can tell it is a closet. I turn and head down the hallway in the opposite direction. There are a number of doors along this hallway, too, all wooden. But the one at the end, straight ahead, interests me the most. It is metal and looks very new. When I reach the metal door, I try the handle. It is locked. It has an electronic eye as well as a keypad, just like the other doors. Without having to think about it, I quickly enter the code on the backup keypad. 25890-225557-STAR. The door clicks, and I slowly open it. Bingo! It leads to a descending stairway that is dark but for the light from the hallway shining in. Now what? Should I go down? Yes. I have come this far. I have to find my dad. I turn on my cell phone's flashlight and start down the steps. After two turns, I reach the bottom and dead end into another metal door. Again, I enter the code on the backup keypad, and the door clicks. As I slowly push the door open, light from within shines into the stairwell. As the angle of the opening door widens, so does the light. With the door partway open, I hear computers humming inside the room. Dad, I say softly. No reply. I slowly open the door all the way. My feet are frozen in place. What if somebody other than my dad is inside? What if I get caught? I force myself to move forward. I step gently, softly, almost tiptoeing on the pristine concrete floor. If nobody can hear me, then maybe I am safe. But I have already opened the door. If somebody is inside, they know I am here. I step forward and look to the left. The bright ceiling lights make it easy to observe the room. The wall to the left is lined with a table that stretches from one corner to the other, then turns with the contour of the wall and stretches along the entire back wall, the table is covered with computers of all sizes, monitors, keyboards, cameras, everything. 22 separate computers to be exact. I scan each computer screen. Every one shows a series of fixed numbers, all different. Every computer except one, that is. One computer runs a series of numbers that constantly change. I watch that computer for a while and notice the series eventually repeats. I wonder if my dad programmed these computers. I think of the formula and equation I saw on my dad's laptop yesterday. But as far as I can tell, these numbers are not related to that. I wish I could have had more time to source the information on my dad's laptop. Mounted on the walls above the computers are video screens in various sizes, 10 total. Each screen displays the same repeating number series that appears on the last computer. Against the remaining two walls are filing cabinets, some with drawers open and papers partially pulled out. More papers are strewn across the floor. There is a half-empty cup of coffee on one of the tables. Steam comes from it, still hot. But there is not a single person in the room. I turn my attention to the middle of the room a large, circular metal object is bolted to the concrete floor. It stands about six feet high and is open in the middle, like a giant metal donut, a sphere. I visually follow each of the wires that run to it from the 22 computers. Then I walk farther into the room so I can see directly through the opening in the sphere. The opening is about five feet in height from bottom to top. The sphere is a good twenty feet from me as I move into a direct line of sight. Its opening is hazy, and I can barely make out the wall behind it. Everything back there appears to be moving, undulating, wavering back and forth and up and down. My heartbeat quickens as I flash back to the night my mom died. I see it like it was yesterday, sitting in the backseat of our car, watching the road, trees, and speed limit sign waver. This is the same motion. And everything inside the sphere is covered in the same haze I saw that night. Whatever it is, it crushed our car. As I walk closer to the object, I wipe my palms on the legs of my pants. A bead of sweat forms on my lip, just below my nose. Should I leave? Just get out of here? Of course I should. I have no business being here, that much is clear. But if this is my dad's work, I have to take this chance to find out what he is doing and if it has something to do with why I cannot locate him. I move closer to the metal sphere. In the center of its top arch is a computer screen with a fixed series of numbers on it, all different. I look back at the other computer screens, then again at the screen on the sphere. It must be an algorithm that results from combining the numbers on the other computers. The sphere's opening is still hazy and the wall behind it continues to waver. Looking through the opening, I notice there are no filing cabinets behind the object. When I step to the right and look around the sphere, the cabinets are there with papers pulled out, just like before, and they are solid, not wavering. I step back in front of the sphere, Now I am only a few feet from it. I look through the opening again. The wall behind it is wavering and bare. No cabinets. My heart pounds, and I jump at the sound of a door clanging shut. Miss Ashdown, the guard says. Are you down here? Oh, no. He is at the top of the stairs. I am caught. I quickly look around the room. No other doors and, of course, no windows. Not even a closet to hide in. What do I do? I hear the scrape of the guard's boots on the concrete steps, getting louder with each step. Miss Ashdown. His voice is much sterner and loud. You are not allowed down here. This is very serious. Let's get back upstairs. I'm going to have to contact the university, as well as Mr. Bailey. He enters the room as he finishes his sentence. His eyes are squinted. The corner of his mouth turned up. He mentioned Mr. Bailey. Not only am I in trouble, but I have probably gotten my dad in serious trouble as well. What do I do? 47 pieces of paper on the floor, 420 rivets in the sphere. The humming of the computers grows louder as I step toward the sphere and look into the opening, still wavering. Come with me, Miss Ashdown, the guard demands. I look at the guard. The humming grows louder. What do I do? I look back at the sphere. The haziness in the center is shrinking. I can start to make out the edges of the filing cabinets behind it. They are solid, not wavering. There is a tight grip on my left arm. It's time to go, Miss Ashdown. The guard stares deep into my eyes. No! I yank my arm free. The sudden release of the guard's grip causes me to lose my balance, and I stumble backward. I quickly take one, two, three steps backward to try to stabilize myself, but I cannot. When I take a fourth step, my foot catches the bottom of the sphere. My feet go out from under me as I fall backward, through the hole in the sphere's center. I roll over onto the other side. I look up to see the guard's wavering, shrinking figure approaching. But before he can step through, the wavering stops. The computer stops humming. The guard disappears, and the sphere is gone.
0: So I was wrong, you did have to sit through one math class, but I enjoyed seeing how Serenity's mind worked. Tune into episode 2 in order to find out what's on the other side of the sphere. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you so much. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms, and our background episodes, where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet. <laughs>